Hey, good morning. Such an intense trailer for this sermon series. I feel so much pressure when that music starts. I'm like, oh my gosh, they're going to be so disappointed yet again. It's good to see you today. Hey, if you're a guest this morning, thanks for being here. Thanks for staying through, and I totally get it if you want to slip out at some point during this portion, so no problems. won't hurt my feelings, but it's great to have everybody here. Uh, listen, I want to welcome those of you that are tuning in online. Maybe you're home. Maybe you're traveling. Uh, maybe it's just warm and cozy and, you know, whatever it might be, but thank you for being with us. If you're out in the atrium enjoying the sunlight, thank you for being out there today as we're in our series uh, that is just a powerful, wonderful time to get together and just really think through uh, what does it mean to understand and think about the historical Jesus, right? And so uh, in week one of this series, what did we talk about? We said, you know what, the historical Jesus can help us understand our experience with the living Christ, that there is a Jesus of history, there's a Jesus of faith, and they relate to one another. And last week, Aisha kind of talked about this first week uh, of really who was this historical Jesus, and she said Jesus was a person of the Spirit, uh, and, and, and as such invites us to have a spiritual experience, right? And that we don't take too much convincing if you're here at church, right? So I'm going to ask those of you that are up in the booth to switch over to my presentation. That'd be wonderful. How many of you are doing uh, NCAA March Madness brackets? Anybody? Anybody 100% correct so far? No, not at all. Nobody is. You sure about that? What, what was the biggest upset for you? I'm filling time right now for the tech booth, so help me out. What was the biggest upset in your bracket? Princeton. Yeah, I hate Princeton. Can we talk about Princeton for a little bit? All right, this will give them plenty of time. Let me just share with you my problem with Princeton, okay? Uh, so in 1998, Princeton stole $50 from me. Stole it. They did. They did. You think I'm lying to you. $50, 1998, I'm a senior in my undergraduate work, and I'm applying to graduate programs in Princeton, second-class school I was applying to, right? And I also applied to another little school. But uh, I, I got a letter from Princeton, and it said, unfortunately, we didn't review your application, but thank you for applying. I said, was it that bad? Was it really that bad that you didn't even look at it? So being kind of a logical person, I called and said, well, if you didn't look at my application, would you please send me my $50 back in an application fee? I said, I'm not quite understanding what happened here. And they said, no, we don't do that. I said, don't you have an endowment or something? I mean, you're a pretty old college. Like, help me understand what's going on here. They said, we have a rolling admission. So we, as applicants come in, we, you know, award letters, and we had just filled all our spots before your application. I said, well, was my application late? I feel like I hit the deadline. They went, no, you turned it in on time. So this is what I said to the Princeton admissions department, and they were certainly interested in my thoughts on their process, I imagine. So I said, so what you're telling me is you aren't interested in getting the best candidates. You're interested in getting the best candidates early. Like, yeah, that was it. So from there on, I vowed to destroy Princeton. <laughs> so hasn't really happened, but there you go. I know, they are 16th seed in my mind, that's for sure, <laughs> undoubtedly. So, all right, listen, so hey, uh, how many of y'all have ever had a situation in your life where you've had to think, uh, you're looking, and you go, this is not going to end well? Some of you are thinking that right now. You've heard the first few minutes, you're like, this is not going to end well. <laughs> I'm never going to get home for the game, right? 
You've thought that you've just watched and you've seen like, this isn't going to end well. Maybe you're watching a TikTok video. You know, it's a nice simple. You're like, oh, this is not, but I'm not going to not watch this ending, right? Uh, uh, maybe somebody in your, you're out driving and somebody's driving super aggressively and they just, whoosh, they just fly by you and you're like, that's not going to end well. You just kind of know it's going to happen. Maybe you got a friend who you look at and, and you just go, I, I think they're making some unhealthy choices, given your own experiences, and you say there's a high likelihood that this is not going to end well. Maybe there's somebody new at work and they don't know all the political dynamics at work and they kind of jump in and they start heading down a path, a direction, and you're like, oh no, that is not going to go well, right? Maybe you've experienced a culture around you kind of walking towards a cliff, And you think to yourself on like January 6th, this is not going to end well, right? There's that reality, like we live those experiences. And in those moments, what are we? We're faced with a choice, right? We have this choice. Do I jump in? Do I say something? Do I get involved? Or do I just sit back and watch it happen, right? What am I going to do? And some of us, like you've gotten involved, right? Sometimes you get involved, you say something, and you go, I just don't know. How, what do you see in her? What do you see in him? Like, is, is marriage really the right thing, right? You get involved. You have that conversation. And maybe your relationship is stronger for it, right? Maybe they say, oh, I, I just hadn't thought of that. Maybe you get involved with an organization to, to get active around something that you see in your community that's problematic. And at the end of the day, your community is stronger because you got engaged. You feel better about yourself. But sometimes, sometimes the decision to get involved does the exact opposite, right? Sometimes we just feel compelled. Sometimes we just butt in when we shouldn't, right? Sometimes that happens, and then what? Like the relationship is damaged. The community is damaged. There's, a, there's kind of a death of sorts. And so that decision to get involved can bring joy, but it can also bring pain. How many of y'all ever experienced that? Raise your hand up nice and high, right? I've experienced both of those. I've learned like, okay, if I don't get asked the question, don't give the answer, <laughs> right? And sometimes you do it anyway. But the truth is there was this big choice. There was a lot, of, lot going on in the time of the historical Jesus. And, and the historical Jesus was faced with kind of a similar circumstance. He saw the reality of what was happening in the Jewish homeland at the time. And I think the historical Jesus, as he came of age, as he grew up as a young man living in Nazareth, just off the Sea of Galilee, I think he thought to himself, something's got to give. There's so much happening here. And the truth is, what we know from history is that the world of Jesus in that first century, that we'll call it, what one historian calls it, the the matrix of his life, the entanglement that's all around him. It's not just background that you can separate, but it's just the entire matrix with which Jesus would have grown up in, right? That social world was in crisis, and it was brewing. And I know we know nothing about a brewing social crisis. We have no concept of this. So you're really going to have to dig in today and try and understand the tension that might have been experiencing. But that world of Jesus was in crisis, and there were some dominoes that had fallen, all right? So you're going to have to hang in there with me because eventually we're going to get to Jesus in the Bible. But if we don't understand the history, we, won't, we will misunderstand Jesus, okay? So can you stick with me? Oh, thank you, six of you. This is going to be fantastic. All right, listen. Now here's the scoop. What had happened, there were three big dominoes that had fallen, like they had hit one another in perfect timing and perfect succession that had created this cultural crisis. The first was Rome had annexed the Jewish homeland. So Rome, about 60 years before the birth of Jesus, had taken basic control, tax control of this area. And they had put in some client kings or puppet kings, right? 
they were usually of Jewish descent of some sort, and they were considered like king of the Jews. Now, Herod the Great is a name some of you heard. You ever heard of Herod the Great? Right? So Herod the Great, he was kind of the Rome puppet client king from about 37 to 4 BCE, right? Or BC, whichever you prefer. And, and he kind of had, he built up the area, but he was kind of brutal. Nobody liked him at all. Nobody liked Herod the Great. And so when Herod the Great was kind of, when he died, now the, 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 all, this, all, this, all the tension starts to really brew up. And what happens is in that moment, the Jewish homeland feels the full weight of the Roman army because Rome comes in with a garrison and squelches an uprising that took place around the year four. It was led by a guy named Judas from Galilee, right? This is important. Like This is the, Jesus, this is the area Jesus would have grown up in. He would have been born about a decade after this happens. And in that moment, the Roman garrison comes down, they come into the kind of the, this area, and they squelch a revolution that was taking place, and they had a mass crucifixion. They crucified 2,000 Jewish uh, rebels, 2,000 in one day. They said, this is what Rome does, right? So the raid happens, and then Rome kind of sets up a little bit more power, and they say, this is going to be a problem. So Rome takes Herod's territory and divides it into four areas, Right? And he divides that up between Herod's three sons and his sister, All right? And now there's two of these areas that are really important and particularly of, of, of interest when we talk about Jesus. The first is the area that included Jerusalem, right? So this area was known as Samaria, Judea, and Udumea, these three kind of areas, and they were given to Herod Archelaus, one of Herod's sons. Now, this dude was so bad at his job, so bad. How many of you have ever had a bad boss? You ever experienced a bad national leader in your opinion? Maybe, I don't know, right? So here's the scoop. This guy is so bad. Say, how bad? It's a joke. This guy is so bad. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Y'all are good. Okay. He is so bad that the Jewish people, they send a delegate to Rome and they're like, you would be better than this guy. They go to Rome and they're like, can you please get rid of Herod Archelaus and put somebody else in power? So that's what happens. They appeal to the emperor. The emperor removes Herod Archelaus from controlled Jerusalem and turns it into a Roman province. And now Rome is going to send governors into Jerusalem, Judea, and Udumea, and they are going to govern that area firsthand. And they were going to send some winners to govern, right? Because why does Rome's like, I just got to keep this little area because we got to keep the people from the west and the east, and it like gets us into Asia. And they don't really care too much about the area, except it's a big roadway, right? <laughs> so they're not sending the best and the brightest from Rome, okay? They're sending second-rate governors down there. And, and so one of those governors, you probably heard the name is Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate comes in in the 20s. So now that area is controlled by Rome. The other area that's of interest is kind of in the north, and that's the area called Galilee and Perea. And this area became under the rule of Herod Antipas, another one of Herod's sons. Now, he seemed to flourish in that area because he remained in power until 39. So he remained in power for almost 45 years. Herod did all kinds of like building projects, kind of followed in his dad's footsteps. One of the big things he wanted to do was commercialize the Sea of Galilee. We'll talk about that in a second. I know you're super excited, okay? <laughs> and here's one of the crazy things that Herod Antipas did. Herod Antipas moved the capital of that area from a town called Sepphoris, which was just outside of Nazareth, which you've heard of Nazareth before, but he moved it and he built a city on the sea called Tiberias after the emperor Tiberius. He knew what he was doing, right? He's like, this is after you. Like, this probably stayed in power, right? He understood the politics of the day, right? And so all this is happening inside of it. Now, 
Rome comes in. Rome is in control. What does Rome do immediately? Tax you, right? Rome comes in and says, you are now going to pay tribute to Rome. And what this does, particularly for the Jewish people, not necessarily for every people that Rome conquers, but for the Jewish people, it created a system of double taxation. If you're a fill-in-the-blank kind of person today, that's one of your fill-ins, double taxation. And everybody was like, that sounds like fun, (laughs) right? No. So what, and why is it a double taxation? Because the Jews already had a tax system. It was called the tithe right? So Jews gave about 20% of all of their, all of the crops that come in, they would bring 20% basically into the temple. And this would pay for the priests, the upkeep of the temple, the temple staff, they were known as the Levites, and it would care for the poor. So that's what they did. Well, the Roman tax system, if you owned land, was 1% of your land's value and 12.5% of your crop. So what does that mean? That means that the Jewish people were being taxed about 35%. And most of the Jewish people were living at a subsistence level, right? You had a huge gap. I know we don't know anything about income gaps, wealth gaps, things like that, but they did. So this creates a big problem. Now, you got 35% tax burden. And on top of that, how Rome collected taxes was they had what were called tax farmers. Fun job, right? So they were hired to go collect the taxes, and then those tax farmers were responsible to pay a set fee. And how did the tax farmers make their money? They imposed more taxes. They imposed a fee onto the people they were taxing. So you've got a 35% tax burden, and you've got the tax collectors or the tax farmers that are coming. And then if you live in Galilee and you work on the sea, you're a fisherman, probably what's happening is Antipas is paying for all of his building projects. He's moving the capital. That's an easy task, doing all that. And how is he paying for it? The commercialization of the Sea of Galilee is probably what he's doing. So if you have a fishing business, what happens? Well, you can no longer just go out on the sea, do your business, fish, come back. You've got to do what? You've got to pay to put your boat on the sea. And then what you catch in the sea, you've got to bring a portion and pay for that right? Like Antipas was no dummy. He was like, this is how I'm going to generate revenue. Now, it's no wonder why Jesus, his disciples were what? Most of them were fishermen because they were fed up. Like they were receiving the worst of it in a lot of ways. Now, what was fascinating was the Jewish culture, the Jewish leadership had no legal sanction if a person didn't pay their tithe. They couldn't legally do anything, and neither would Rome. Rome didn't enforce that. Rome didn't care if you paid your tithe to the Jewish temple or whatever. That's your issue. You're just going to pay us. So what happens is this double taxation creates a, a system where if you were in, say, a normal life, you couldn't do all of that. You just couldn't afford to live. You couldn't eat. You couldn't feed your family. So you had to make a choice. Do I pay my taxes to Rome, or do I pay my taxes to the temple? Now, Rome can come and take me. What, what can the Jewish leaders do? Well, they just kind of ostracize you. And in a shame culture, honor shame culture, that's a big deal. But this creates a crisis in the faith because you have a whole group of people who become non-observant Jews. That means that they were forced to choose to pay one of those taxes. They chose to pay the Romans. And now they're no longer allowed to go into the temple. They're no longer allowed to participate in religious life. There's a whole bunch of shame that gets gets put onto them. So that, what emerges, another domino now, is a religious crisis. 
We don't have people coming to the temple. We don't have people paying the temple tithes. How are we going to support everything? And so what happens during this time is the third domino. And that third domino is that there had always been kind of a, a, a politic of holiness, what one historian calls. And this politics of holiness, right, this became a dominant way of thinking about Judaism. And it became the dominant theme within the Jewish cultural world, and it was a response to all of Rome's occupation. It was a response to the taxes not being paid in the temple. And it was kind of a doubling down on the holiness codes in the Torah. Do this, don't do this, be a part of this. And it was all about, the word holiness just means to be separate. And so holiness code and holiness politics was grounded in this idea that we are to be separate, right? We're to be different, So it was very dualistic. There were good people and there were bad people. There were righteous and there were unrighteous. There was clean and there was unclean. There was Jew and there was Gentile. Part of the dominant thinking in that day was if you were holy, if you were righteous, if you were clean, you would get a reward from God. If you were unrighteous, if you were unclean, if you were unholy, you would be punished by God. Right? And so this became like the dominant way of interpreting the scripture, the dominant way of thinking, the dominant way of managing people giving their tithe into the temple. And it started way back. It started way back in the exile when Israel was exiled and they were living in foreign lands. And this was a way to kind of preserve your national identity. And most of the sages, the rabbis, the people who would like teach the Torah in that day, they would teach it through the framework of holiness because this was the wisdom of the day. It was the popular wisdom. But here's the thing, right? If we just like step back, the holiness politic at the end of the day was like an extremely racist reality. Can I just say that out loud? Like if I were to stand up here today and say, here's the deal. If you're in here and you're American, I don't want you talking to anybody who's not American. I don't want you having dinner with anybody who's not American. You would say what? That's racist. If I say, we're going to build a church and we're going to put a wall around this church and we're not going to let people come into this church that aren't American or that aren't white or that aren't this or that aren't that, you would say that's racist. I mean, it's not a trick question, right? If I were to say you are only allowed to marry people of your nationality, no international marriages, no interracial marriage, you would say that's, hang in there with me, all right? But that's what the politics of holiness was. And there was this active movement at the time of Jesus to double down because it was trying to salvage Judaism and it was trying to to keep their identity. And it was saying, this is who we are. And so there were three active renewal movements in the day. And it intensified this politic of holiness. Like it just took it to the nth degree. So these three groups you might have heard of, one was called the Essenes, And the way that the Essenes thought was, hey, we are radical separatists. We live outside of Jerusalem. If you've ever heard of the Qumran community where the Dead Sea Scrolls came from, you probably haven't. That's okay. But they would practice their own sacrifices. They would stay away from the temple because they said the the leadership is unclean and pure. They're not doing it right. So they were like radical separatists. If you've ever heard of Masada and you ever heard of that final like suicide, those were probably Essenes. A lot of people think John the Baptist was influenced by Essenes. Now, the second group many of us have heard of is the Pharisees. And when I say Pharisees, if you grew up in church, immediately what comes to your mind is like, dun, 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 like villainous people, okay? Can we just like, that's like, that's just PR from the gospel writers, okay? (laughs) That's the PR campaign of the gospel writers. Pharisees were not bad people. Pharisees had a deep faith. 
Pharisees were concerned about their people. Rabbinic Judaism that we have today traces its heritage back to the Pharisees, right? Like in the first century, you have Pharisees being martyred by Rome because they would not, uh, you know, they wouldn't sway from what they believed, but they were very zealous for it. Their way of thinking was we need a kingdom of priests, And what they meant by that was everybody needs to undertake the holiness requirements of the priests. If everybody lives like the priests, God will protect our homeland. If everybody lives like the priests and we follow all the rules, then everything is going to be wonderful. So they were devoted deeply to absolute loyalty to God. And we think of them because we've grown up like, oh, these were the enemies of Jesus. They were a different political party than Jesus, right? They thought differently. The gospel writers had, they, they, they bring up this hyperbole about the Pharisees. And I'm sure there were some that Jesus was in conflict with, but these are not bad people, okay? They, they, they loved the same things that even Jesus would love. They loved the Sabbath. They understood the richness of the festivals. They believed in prayer and fasting. They thought this was the way. And social pressure was their tool, right? So they would only give their tithe to the, to the priests that actually followed the priestly rule, right? And they were quick to say, if you didn't follow their way, you're out. But they, they had this beautiful understanding. Paul was a Pharisee and never stopped being one, by the way. Like, it's my belief that Paul never stopped being a Pharisee. And if you read Paul and you don't read it through that lens, you're going to miss something really beautiful. Paul's always in tension with Jesus and the Pharisaic background that he has. Now, they accepted Roman rule, the Pharisees did. They just said, only resist Rome when they ask you to do something that's against the holiness code, right? Now, there was this other philosophy, and a historian of antiquity, a guy named Josephus, who wrote a couple of big histories, he calls it a fourth philosophy. And this was really a philosophy um, of, of violence against Rome. Like, they were active, violent resistors, they would do anything to get rid of Rome. Rome was the problem, right? So you have these three movements all taking place at the time that Jesus is born, and it's bubbling up, and this politics of holiness is really building this tension, okay? And what happens is this. These cultural dynamics, they create a new social group, and this new social group in all this literature, they become sinners and outcasts. So if you had to choose to pay Rome instead of the temple, Right? If you wouldn't fit in line with the pharisaical way of resistance, if you weren't an Essene, if you didn't fit into this fourth way of resistance, you were a sinner or an outcast. And it was a social group, virtually untouchable. If, if you've ever heard of like the untouchables, that class, this was a class system. They didn't fit the conventional wisdom of society, and so they were seen as outcasts, cursed by God. And so here's the thing, all of this, so the Roman injustices, the economic pressure, the loyalty that, the, that Judaism had to this like politic of holiness, it was leading the country to war. And I believe deeply that Jesus knew it. I believe deeply that Jesus as a young man looked and saw what was happening like so many and said, this is a path that will lead us to destruction. And in fact, it did. The great war with Rome happened in 66 to 70. They took control of the city. They destroyed the temple. They burned it. Now, in the midst of all of this, right? In the midst of the Pharisees and the Essenes, this fourth way of thinking, the Sadducees, they were kind of a group of aristocrats. They really weren't into renewal, totally different. Like, where did Jesus fit in? What was Jesus in all of this? The historical Jesus, the guy who grew up in Nazareth, who grew up next door to a place where 2,000 people were crucified. 
Some historians have, have thought, I think, imaginatively and creatively that Joseph might have been killed in that revolt. Right? Like, how, how, how do we think about this? What is that Jesus? And there's a couple things that emerge from that picture that historians have said, this is who Jesus was. First, Jesus was a sage. Like, Jesus was a sage who challenged conventional wisdom by teaching an alternative way. So a sage is a teacher of wisdom. Now, I know immediately right now, some of you that are listening, you're tuning in, you're like, oh, not my Jesus. My Jesus is way more than that. Okay, just hold on to that thought for a second. But Jesus is all the time in our Gospels. He's addressed as what? Teacher, rabbi. And he's addressed by the people who love him and the people who don't like him. Okay, so I get that for many of us, the exalted Jesus, the post-Easter Jesus is way more than just a sage. But we, we have to say historically, he's nothing less than this. Right? He would have been seen as a sage. And as a sage, he had two big themes, he had probably three, but two themes that I want to talk about today real quickly in his teachings. Two great themes that he would talk about. One, Jesus taught an image of reality. So if you were to go, if you were to be so lucky as to have Jesus traveling by and you could go hear him, he would talk about life as ultimately spirit. And, and Aisha touched on this last week. He would teach an image of reality that said, there is a kingdom, right? He would use the word kingdom and it's patriarchal, but we might say a realm or a reign of God that is beyond what we can see. It's deeper than that. And he would teach that this realm, that this spirit is ultimately gracious and understanding. So totally different than the politic of holiness, totally different than the God that is being portrayed and the reality that's being portrayed by the conventional wisdom. Okay? Now, to display this reality, Jesus would do something very, very countercultural. He would eat with sinners. So he lived out this reality, this idea of a compassionate God. He demonstrated it. He incarnated it, if I can use a theological word, by eating with sinners. And when we hear that word sinners, we have to recognize what we're talking about. In the time, these are people that the dominant system has excluded and pushed out. They couldn't pay their taxes. They couldn't meet the requirements of conventional wisdom. So this class that was created, Jesus would go and eat with them. In Mark chapter 2, verse 16, Mark says that some scribes who were Pharisees, right? So what were they? They had an occupation in the community. They were scribes, but they had given over to and believed in this revitalization movement led by the Pharisees. So they were trying to live all the priestly requirements, Okay. Because anybody could be a Pharisee. You, you didn't, that was what they wanted. Pharisees wanted you to join and become a Pharisee, and then you would work your way up because you would follow all the rules and be that priest, that kingdom of priests. So there were scribes who were Pharisees, and they saw that Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors, the tax farmers, right? Those people. And they said, why does he do that? Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Doesn't he know? The conventional wisdom, every sage of the day, every system was saying, one, it was creating the problem, but was saying, God is punishing them. Now, Jesus, to talk about this quality of God as compassionate, he would show it, or as, as kind of inclusive of like being there, right? Jesus would eat with sinners, but he would often use this word compassionate, or um, sometimes it's translated merciful, to describe God in this realm. This was kind of his favorite word. And it's actually the plural of the Hebrew and Aramaic word that means womb. 
Now imagine this, Jesus, the, one of his favorite words to describe the ultimate spirit, the ultimate reality, had this connotation of womishness, that this, this living reality, this, this depth of being was nourishing, it was life-giving, it was tender. And as Jesus would talk about that, he would then begin to talk about an alternative way of being, right? So he was a sage, and he talked about this compassionate God, and he would eat with sinners. And then he would talk about, there's this different way of living. There's two ways of living. And you can make your choice, but this alternative way was a way of transformation. Because Jesus recognized and said, there's a problem. And he would oftentimes do what sages would do, is they would speak of two different paths, two different ways that you could travel on. And he would use different metaphors. One metaphor that he would use was narrow and broad road. How many of you have heard of the narrow and broad way? So Jesus would say, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction. And those who enter through it are many. How narrow the gate and constricted the road that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Now, given what we know about the historical Jesus, what is he talking about? Do we think Jesus is talking about the Pharisaical way of living with all the rules and following all the morality and you got to fit in and be pure? Or is Jesus saying the exact opposite, that the narrow way that will lead to life is compassion and inclusion and grace? Because this path is leading to revolt against Rome. You're asking people to revolt against Rome. You want people to follow all the temple rules at the expense of Rome. It's going to lead to war. He would talk about a wise and foolish way. Same principle, right? He would talk about building your house. He says, if you listen to these words of mine and act on them, you're like a wise man who builds his house on a rock. You've heard this before, maybe. The rain would fall, the floods would come, and the winds blew and buffeted the house. But what would happen? It didn't collapse because it had been built solidly on a rock. But everyone who listens to my words and doesn't act on them will be like a fool who builds his house or her house on the sand. The rain will fall, the floods will come, the winds will blow, and the the house will be buffeted, but it will collapse and it will be ruined. Now, what was Jesus saying? What was the foundation? Is the foundation purity culture and rules and morality? No, no, no. The foundation is compassion and tenderness. That's what you build on, and that's, that was the narrow way in Jesus' historical context. Nobody's going around saying what Jesus is saying, by the way. I mean, there's, some, there's a new movement taking place of nonviolent resistance that Jesus probably falls into, but nobody's walking around going, love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. No, no, no. Everybody's going around saying, be more righteous and God won't punish you. Follow the rules and God will protect our land. And for Jesus, he would say the broad way is this path that leads to anxiety and selfishness and exclusion. Like that was the condition. And it would lead to a blindness to God all around us. He would talk about blind people following blind guides, missing God. And so the politics of holiness, the idea of separation and exclusion of rewards and punishment from a God based on behavior would lead to anxiety and selfish behavior. It's just about me. I've got to make sure I'm good. I've got to make sure I follow all the rules and you got to be just like me. It was common then and it's common now. It was the broad way then. It's the broad way now. And Jesus would say, there's a different path. And he would kind of give some metaphors as to what it meant to walk this path. He would say, to be on this path, you're going to have to have a new heart. You're going to have to have a new heart. You see, Mark chapter 7 talks about the heart. The whole, if you want to dive into it, read all of Mark chapter 7, and you'll see like over and over again, Jesus is just talking about there's a heart problem. 
Here's a heart problem. In, in, in verse 6, he says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. This was in response to people coming and challenging the fact that his disciples didn't ritually wash their hands. They didn't follow the rules. And he says, oh, but they do all the right things, but their heart is far from God. They're following all the rules. The outside looks great, but the inside is a mess. Verse 14 and 15, Jesus would summon the crowd together and he said to him, hear me, all of you, and understand nothing that enters one from outside can defile the person, but things that come out from within the heart are what defile us. See, it was a heart reality. Verses 20 through 23, he said, what comes out of a person, that, that's not the deal, right? What comes out of a person, that's what defiles, not what goes in, right? From within people, from their hearts, come evil thoughts and unchastity and theft and murder and adultery, greed, malice, deceit, licentiousness, envy, blasphemy, arrogance, folly. All these evils come from within and they defile. They are not it's not that you're not following a rule. It's not that you're not living up to it or that you're going out. You're not living outside the city with the Essenes or you're following all the rules of the Pharisees or you're raising up arms with the active resistors. No, no, no. There's a heart condition that has to get fixed. And he would talk about part of that condition getting fixed is learning to center on the spirit. To live a life focused on that spirit world. What Aisha talked about, we all have different experiences with that spirit dynamic. But Jesus would say you have to choose to orient your life around a loyalty to the things of God. And for him, that was compassion and justice and inclusion and mercy and forgiveness for the gospel writers, it was his great proclamation that day in the temple. I'm here to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom to the captives, right? That's the focus on spirit. Jesus would oftentimes talk about there's two competing centers in your heart. There's a physical material world that produces anxiety, that produces pain and exclusion, or there's the world of spirit. Luke 16, 13 says, no servant can serve two masters. They'll either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and mammon. Like, think of it, you can't serve the spirit reality and the physical reality, which is oftentimes reduced to money and wealth. Matthew 6, 19 through 20, famous passage. Preachers love this one. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and decay and where thieves break in and steal. No, store up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor decay destroys nor thieves break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So we have orange kiosks in the back today. As you exit, you can just empty your wallet. Come on now. If we don't understand the historical Jesus, we'll abuse the Jesus of the Gospels. What Jesus is saying here is, you center your life on the things of heaven, the spirit, God, you're going to store up treasure. If you focus on building the bigger and bigger barns, what's going to happen? One day you're going to be gone and there's just going to be big barns filled with stuff that somebody's got to go through. Way to bless them. And Jesus would also say that this path, this way was a way of a new heart, right? He would talk about it being a way of centering on God, but he would also say it was a way of death. And we march towards that understanding as we head towards Good Friday. But he would talk about this, and, and he would say that this way of choosing life, this way of a new heart would require a death of sorts, of an old heart. A very famous passage, Luke 9, 23, 
Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny themselves and they must take up their cross and follow me. This death is an internal process, daily dying to selfishness, daily dying to the desire to exclude, to scapegoat, to say the problem's out there. It's a death to the conventional wisdom of our day that says these people are right, those people are wrong. Here's how you, here's how you can succeed. Here's, how, here's what it means to excel. It's a death to a religion in Jesus' day that would legitimate a way of life rather than invite people to a new way of life, right? When religion becomes a legitimization of what I believe about my country, what I believe about my God, there's a problem when healthy religion ought to be an invitation into a completely new way of life that rebinds us to the spirit world. But again, we don't have that problem today. Baptism for the earliest church, right? For the earliest followers of Jesus, what baptism was, right? It was this ritualized way of saying, I'm dying with Christ to my old self and I'm being resurrected into a new life. This life in the spirit, this life with different priorities and different values. And so ultimately, what Jesus was doing, this guy who walked this earth, who a movement followed after him, he started a Jewish revitalization movement that was grounded in compassion. That's what the historical Jesus was about. It was deeply Jewish. He says it over and over. Jesus was concerned only with the Jews. The mission to the Gentile came later. It gets imposed back in, but Jesus, he sends out the 12, right? And he says what? Go out, heal the sick, eat with people, but only go to what? The lost sheep of Israel. Matthew 10, chapter 5, verse 6. He sends out the 12 on a mission, and he instructs them, don't go into pagan territory or enter a Samaritan town. Go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, who are the lost sheep of the house of Israel? Historically speaking, they're the ones that the system pushed out. It's not people who just said, well, I just hate the law. I hate Judaism. I hate that God. I'm going to go live however I want. I'm going to be licentious. I don't care. It's all a bunch of garbage. No, it's a system, a politic of holiness that said, if you don't do all these things, you can't be a part. You're out. And if you're not in, then we're going to shame you and exclude you. And now that's proof that God is punishing you. See, that's the lost sheep of Israel. Go out. When Jesus says, leave the 99 to follow the one in John, John's given this beautiful, like, that's what it's about. It has nothing to do with moral guidance. It has nothing to do with people not living up to a standard. It has everything to do with what the culture was doing to people in the day, excluding. If you couldn't follow the conventional wisdom, if you couldn't live under that politic, if you didn't have the economic means, then you were labeled an outsider, a sinner. And so compassion it was the pathos, it was the essence of his work and his movement, but it was also the essence of his politics. Whoa. Of course Jesus was political. He died a political death. So he emphasizes compassion over holiness. That's the ethos, right? In Luke chapter 6, verse 6, Jesus has the audacity to change the Bible. Did you know that? This guy born a peasant with no money, no house, doesn't even have a father. This guy decides that he has the authority to change the law, change the Leviticus. Here's what he says in Luke 6, verse 6. He says, be merciful, compassionate. It's that word for compassion, just as also your father is merciful or compassionate. 
the original word there is holy, right? The, the, the climax of the Leviticus holiness code says, be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And Jesus comes along and says, no, sorry, we're not going to emphasize that. We're going to emphasize the compassion. And he changes the whole game. Everybody listening to Jesus would know exactly what he was doing there because that phrase, be holy, as I, Lord, had been thrown in their face. And here comes this guy who says, wait a second. Let's be compassionate and merciful as your heavenly father is compassionate and merciful. And this turned into politics, the way of organizing society, breaking down walls, actual actionable things. He told his disciples, eat with anyone, include and associate with women. The nerve. Poverty is not a punishment of God. Blessed are the poor. What? No, no, blessed are the poor. For they'll inherit the kingdom of God. And that is this unseen spirit world. They'll be able to see it. Those are the ones that should be teaching us. Poverty is not a punishment from God. It's a product of human injustice. It's a product of all these systems. His movement would become the peace party. Right there in Palestine, he would say these crazy things like, love your enemy. Go the extra mile when Rome comes. He would talk about nonviolent resistance. Give to Caesar what's Caesar, to God's what's God's. Marcus, book, Marcus Borg, a, a Jewish historian who's passed away, a Jesus historian, excuse me, who's passed away, he wrote this beautiful book that we're using as a part of a framework for this. It's called A Vision, uh, Jesus, A New Vision. And in it, he writes this. He says, Jesus sought to transform his social world by creating an alternative community structured around compassion with norms that moved in the direction of inclusiveness, acceptance, love, and peace. So we're finally to the point. Explaining the historical Jesus, understanding the, the guy who walked around. When people had no concept or no thought of like atonement, dying on a cross for sins, before any of that would emerge, this historical Jesus walked around and understanding that invites us now to experience this living Christ, this exalted one, as a compassionate guide on the narrow peacemaking path. That's what it means, right? Now I can experience this Jesus, this spirit, this God, this realm, as, an, as a compassionate guide to myself. Oh, man, I messed up. Hey, relax. Relax. That's not God. God's compassion. Relax. That's the way we think about God. That's God in our image. No, no, no. So you walk this peacemaking path that Jesus says, it's narrow, it's hard, it's difficult. It leads to life, though, not just for you, but for others. So in your everyday normal life, how do we live this out? Knowing what we know about Jesus, the context, the history, the fire hose you just drank from, what does that mean for us today? Well, some simple things. Question the conventional wisdom of the day. Question it. Look for the modern holiness politics. It's, it's there and it will always be there because it is the conventional wisdom of society that there's a group of people that belong and there's a group of people that don't belong. That is the conventional wisdom of the day. So look for who conventional wisdom says doesn't belong and run to them and you will experience and encounter Jesus. I promise you that. We should always be questioning that. Who in my life do I think shouldn't belong? Who is it? Who's the scapegoat? Who's the problem? Who are the rules not meant for? Who are the rules are fixed against? Faith rules, cultural rules, where are they? 
Second thing we can do is center our life on the compassionate, caring, loving nature of spirit. <laughs> I think it was Renee. No, who was it? Renee Girard. I think he said, he said, we should take a hundred years and not use the word God because we've so messed it up. <laughs> we've just so messed it up. So much baggage with that word. So, Center our life on, on, yes, on God, but if that word brings a lot of baggage, think about centering your life on the compassionate nature of reality to which Jesus points is the deepest truth. So how do we center? We make real-life decisions, real-time decisions around our money, our time, our values, all those things. We live with enough. We make choices. We, 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 we involve ourselves in compassionate and merciful work in our communities and in our world. It will not be popular. It won't be popular. It never has been popular. No matter what you call it, the Jesus movement of compassion, of going against conventional wisdom, will never be popular. It won't be. But it's the narrow path. It's that narrow path. And, and I would say, I get it, it's weird, <laughs> But maybe, maybe if you've never done this, consider baptism. We still baptize people. I know, it's weird. I get it. I totally get it. Baptism was like a part of normal life in the first century. And I really do believe if Jesus were here today, he'd be like, I cannot believe you all are doing that. Because <laughs> I think Jesus has a sense of humor, right? I just do. I think he'd be like, oh my gosh, you all are nuts. All right, if we're going to do it, let's do it, you know? I just, I just, that's, I just don't, I think it's not a rule, but I think we still do it because it can be this beautiful moment where we say, I have new life in Christ. But I don't believe it's to appease a God that is mad at us. I believe it's to say, I want to be a part of the kingdom. I want to be a part of this way of living that is filled with compassion and inclusion that reflects the God that Jesus revealed. So we're going to do baptisms on April 16th if you want to be a part of that. And how does this make the world a better place? Well, I have this belief that compassion makes suffering unacceptable in a community. That when we really ground ourselves in compassion, suffering becomes unacceptable. But if we are grounded in this idea that, well, people just need to work harder, if we're grounded in this idea that people just need to make better choices, it's up to them. I, I'm not responsible for that choice that they made we, we're okay with suffering because what do we say? Oh, they brought it on themselves. But when compassion that Jesus reveals as the mark of the truest reality begins to overwhelm us, when you see suffering, it becomes unacceptable and you just begin to relieve the suffering. And I think that's love. I think that's love. I think that's how we reverse our thinking about enemies and friends. So over the next few moments, the band's going to just play a song and we're going to let you store up some treasure in heaven. We're going to receive the offering and the connect cards. Everybody's got something to give today, your connect card. Put that in there. Put a prayer request in there. If you're new and like the whole giving thing is, is weird for you, I totally get it. If you're a part of Crossroads, I encourage you to give generously. Not because of what God's going to give to you, but because you believe in the work that we're doing together. So as you kind of fill out that connect card, as you think about your next steps, what's God inviting you into, maybe consider where in your normal everyday life you could give a more compassionate response to someone.
right? Maybe it's to get baptized. Maybe read the Gospel of Luke, understanding the tension that, that is being experienced, that's underlying the, the, the evolution of the Jesus movement and the way of thinking about Jesus. It's all still there in the Gospels, but it's just hidden. It's hidden post-resurrection in a lot of ways. But read it and look for, where is there a clash of compassion and holiness? Where is there that clash? Band's going to do this great song. Um, it's called Love is Not Against the Law. So I'm really kind of, words are powerful. So as you kind of fill out that connect card, you're offering envelope, get that ready. Just consider, consider your own heart and your life and what, what this spirit of compassion is inviting you into today. And then I'll be back with our blessing.